If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to grab them and turn to Matthew chapter 27. We're looking at the fourth statement that Jesus made from the cross on what we refer to as that Good Friday. Last week, we took a break in this series and heard from special guest Dr. R.T. Kendall. Wasn't that wonderful? Hope you enjoyed uh, Dr. Kendall. He absolutely loved being here and preached a powerful message on forgiveness that went right in line with statement number one that we looked at in our series. It was the prayer from Jesus, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Uh, Then we came back and we looked at what we call a word of salvation, where Jesus looked at the thief on the cross. And after being asked by that one of the thieves, remember me when you come into your kingdom, Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. The third statement uh, is a statement, uh, what I would call a word of comfort. Uh, John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27, you'll see it on the screen. Uh, In order to stay the course for Easter, we're not going to unpack this statement today since we missed it last week, but I'll say just a few things about it. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. The first three statements, it's amazing to think about, uh, but Jesus has not mentioned himself once. I mean, just think about that. Uh, Here he is being beaten and mocked and spit upon and railed and uh, his hands and feet nailed to a cross, thorns on his head. He is a dying man. And in his last hours on earth, not a word about himself, hardly at all. The first three statements, word of forgiveness, uh, a word of salvation. Uh, and here this word of comfort. He wants his mother taken care of. He is fulfilling his role and obligation, taking his responsibility seriously as a son and entrusting his mother Mary to the disciple whom he loved, the apostle John. And uh, in this, he is showing the importance of a spiritual family uh, that he wanted his mother looked after, taken care of. And there's so much more we could say about this third saying, this word of comfort. But we're going to move on to this fourth saying that we're going to unpack today. If you're taking notes, these words in red, the title of the message is A Word of Anguish. Now, Anguish is, I got this word from Erwin Lutzer in his book, Christ from the Cross. He titles it, A Word of Anguish, A.W. Pink. In his commentary on the words, the seven last sayings of the cross, he refers to it as anguish as well, and I couldn't improve upon it. Uh, The word anguish is a great word to describe the statement that we're looking at today. It's defined as severe mental or physical pain or suffering can be defined as being distressed about something. It carries synonyms like agony and pain, torment, torture, suffering, grief, angst, misery, heartbreak, woe. All of this is what Jesus was feeling, what he's experiencing on the cross. The first three statements that Jesus makes, he makes while it's light outside. He's put on the cross at 9 o'clock in the morning, and from 9 to noon, at some point in the day there, Jesus makes these three statements, and it's believed that first one, Father, forgive them, was just repetitive. He would say it over and over again. These last four statements that we're looking at leading up to Easter, most scholars believe they were made in total darkness when at noon uh, the, the darkness covered the land, and these last four statements, most scholars believe, were made in rapid succession right at the end of his life. And so Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 45 and 46, the Bible says from the sixth hour, that's high noon, there was darkness over all of the land until the ninth hour, three o'clock in the afternoon. 
And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice in his native tongue, Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, I want to build this message off of four words. And these four words, uh, we will see exactly why we are calling this a word of anguish. The first word is the word suffering. There's no question that suffering surrounded a Roman crucifixion. No doubt about it, physical suffering at its worst. We talked a little bit about this in week one. We won't belabor the point, uh, but you know Jesus was scourged. Many people didn't even make it past the scourging of the flesh when they were enduring a crucifixion. Jesus then carries the beam of his cross to this place where he would be placed upon the cross, nailed hands and feet. According to the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied the Messiah would be a suffering servant, talks about how the physical suffering of Jesus marred his very appearance. Isaiah 53, uh, 2 verse 14, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. No question Jesus suffered physically on the cross, but he also suffered emotionally. Abandoned, for the most part, by those that were closest to him. Uh, his family uh, didn't believe in him. If you read Matthew chapter 27, Matthew uses words like, the people surrounding the cross derided him. They wagged their heads at him. They mocked him, stripped him of his clothes. Psalm 22 uh, is known as the Psalm of the Cross. You could actually lay Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 together and they almost overlap one another. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor at Philadelphia's 10th Avenue Presbyterian Church, said that Psalm 22 is the best description in all of the Bible of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. And Psalm 22 describes not just the physical suffering that Jesus would endure, but in it describes this emotional suffering. In fact, this prayer that Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Jesus had this psalm in his heart and on his lips as he was being crushed on the cross. And he made it a prayer to God. Now, just a quick point of application. You know, we talked right at the beginning of the service after singing uh, God turns graves into gardens that, you know, oftentimes life throws us curveballs. There are things in life that come our way that have a way of buckling us. Trials that we will all endure. They come in all shapes and sizes. Something is going to happen in your life at one time or another that's going to squeeze you. You will experience physical pain, emotional pain. There will be trauma. We all go through it. And isn't it interesting, just a point of application here, that when Jesus is being squeezed, what comes out of him? It's the very word of God. It's why it's so important that we give ourselves to the word of God every single day so that when that trial comes, when we are being squeezed, what comes out will help build confidence and faith in whatever it is that we're going through. Jesus is experiencing physical pain. He's experiencing emotional pain. 
Psalm 22 gives us this prophecy of the kind of emotional pain that he would go through. Verses 6 through 8, but I am a worm, the scripture says, and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Listen to verse 12 and 13. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Bashan was known for its lush green pastures, and the cattle that grazed there were the strongest beasts uh, that were raised there because of that pasture. What the Bible's saying is that on the cross, Jesus surrounded by these strong men who, like bulls, are mocking him. They're hardened with no conscience, abusing him physically, bullying him, abusing him emotionally. No heart, it seems. You know, some social scientists, psychologists tell us that the effects of emotional abuse can sometimes be worse than that of physical abuse. Because physical abuse, you can see the scars. But emotional abuse often goes underneath the radar, goes unnoticed, and can lead to all sorts of hurtful and harmful behaviors. Jesus here is suffering physically. He's suffering emotionally. He's also suffering spiritually. And this leads me to the second word that describes what's taking place here in Matthew chapter 27, and that's separation. Of the seven sayings on the cross, three of them are prayers. They're bookended with prayers. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. On Palm Sunday, we're going to look at his last statement. It's a prayer as well. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Well, here is a fourth statement, and did you catch it? It is a prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's prayer. The difference in this prayer, though, is very stark. You can't miss it. You study the life of Jesus, and anytime he engaged in prayer, he always referred to God as his Father. Read John 17, an entire chapter on the prayer life of Jesus. Six times in John 17, he refers to God as Father. In the Sermon on the Mount, longest discourse we have of Jesus, his first sermon, he comes on the scene and he teaches, it's a revolutionary teaching that God is Father. Nobody taught that God is Father. God was distant. He was aloof. But Jesus comes on and says, no, you refer to him as Father. He cares for you. He loves you. Even teaching that when you pray, you address him as Father. And yet here, on the cross, Jesus prays in this fourth statement. He doesn't say, Father. At this point on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Just as him as God. Now, not one time in the life of Jesus has he ever known the disapproval of his father. In fact, we see throughout the life of Jesus nothing but approval and affirmation. Do you remember at his baptism, Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, the Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove and a voice comes out of heaven and the voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This is my beloved son. When Peter, James, and John get to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, 
And who Jesus is on the inside is revealed for the very first time on the outside. They see the glory of the Son of God. The Bible says that a a cloud envelops them. Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus had only known the affirmation and approval of his Father. And so in this moment of separation, he cries out because what he's experiencing in the moment, what he is feeling in this moment is totally foreign to him. Again, it's one thing to be abandoned by your family and friends. Jesus knew that. His family thought he was crazy outside of his mom. His friends... They abandoned him. Judas betrays him. Peter forsakes him. Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, verse 50 says that when he was arrested in the garden and they all left him and fled. Jesus knows what it is to be abandoned. But even in the garden of Gethsemane, he could pray to his father, Father, let this cup pass. He could cry out, Abba, Daddy, But here on the cross, it's a separation that he has never known. And listen, he's not just feeling this separation. Isaiah 53 says that it's at this precise moment that God is laying on Jesus the iniquity of us all. And there is a break. There is a separation in the fellowship that existed in eternity between God the Father and God the Son. Erwin Lutzer puts it like this. Now we can better understand why it was midnight at midday. The physical darkness was symbolic of Christ's separation from the Father who is light. Just as the wicked are thrown into outer darkness, so the sun bore the darkness of our hell. Look at these hours on the cross and you are looking into hell. Darkness, loneliness, and abandonment by God. Now I want to make sure to qualify what we mean when we say separation, when the Father abandoned the Son. Understand in this moment, Jesus did not stop being God. 100% man, 100% God. They were not separated in essence. They were not separated in being. They were separated in the fellowship that they had always shared. The Bible says, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 13, that you, God, are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. And so in this moment, When the sin of humanity is placed upon Christ and the cross and he is enduring the very wrath of God. This is why he prayed, let this cup pass because he did not want to drink the cup of the wrath of God and experience this separation. And in this moment, that's exactly what we're seeing. And that's why it's dark. God turning his head toward his son because of my sin. Because of your sin. There is suffering 
There is separation. And the third word I want to give to describe this passage of Scripture is the word silence. Now, some silence is good silence. It's spring break. And I'm getting ready to go on vacation. And we're about to jump in the car. And we're going to be in the car for about eight or nine hours. Me and five females. <laughs> All right? It's going to take me, I'm predicting, about 17 minutes before my earphones go on as I drive down the road. Some silence is a good sign. We were talking about this yesterday, Debbie and I. Uh, when I was growing up, I had older brother, younger sister, and mom and dad would put us in the car, and dad was old school. And he believed, I don't know where he got this from, if it's true, don't tell me it's true, because he believed that if you turn the air conditioner on, it messed with your gas mileage. So we would drive, we would drive eight, ten hours of, uh, away from the house, and I would be sweating profusely. I mean, I would strip my clothes off and be sitting in the back of the car to prove a point to my dad where I know me and my brother and sister are fighting and arguing. All he wants is silence and all we want is air, all right? I, I told Debbie, I'm going to try that tomorrow when we go. I'm just not going to turn on the air conditioner the whole trip, see how that works out. Now, some silence, that's good silence. This silence that Jesus notices on the cross is not a good silence. Verse 46, the Bible says, he cried out with a loud voice. The word cried out, it comes from a combination of two Greek words. One meaning to shout out, and it has a prefix on it that means up, meaning to sh he shouts out upward. This is a guttural scream that Jesus makes here. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Literally, why me have you forsaken? And he gets nothing. It's met with silence, not a word from God the Father. Chuck Swindoll describes what's taking place. He said, nature bowed in sympathy as its creator was put to death. It was as though the light dimmed across the universe as the darkness of death descended upon the earth. How strange it must have seemed to those who stood and stared. From noon until three in the afternoon, two things were present. Darkness and silence. Go back to Psalm 22. One, that prophecy that Jesus prays. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me for the words of my groaning? But look at verse 2. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Said that Luther, the reformer, sat for hours contemplating this verse right here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't sleep. He just kept thinking about this. And then finally, when he broke his silence, he said, God forsaken of God. Who can understand that? True, that's hard to fathom. God forsaking God. But you know what's not hard to fathom? The silence that Jesus receives when he cries out to God. Because all of us probably at one time or another have cried out to God and it's been met with silence. Some of you here, you've cried out to God for that baby. I want to, God, please give me a baby. And it's been met with silence. Some of you are looking for a new job. One you're in seems like a dead end. It's giving you no purpose. 
You've been crying out to God, God, would you do something? Would you move? And it's met with silence. There's a broken relationship. And all you want is restoration. And all you get is silence. A wayward son or daughter, a grandson, granddaughter, and you cry out to God, God, bring them back. It's met with silence. Part of the beauty of Jesus on the cross that he willingly goes to is that he is fully identifying with us. Philippians 2 uses that phrase, he empties himself. When he goes to that cross and experiences and endures the silence of God, the Father, he is showing us in this moment that he is our rightful high priest. He knows how we feel. He knows what we're going through. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The lesson is next time you cry out and it's met with silence, Just remember, you're in good company. Jesus knows what you're going through. And he will minister his presence to you in the moment. I found this quote this week. I don't know who to attribute it to. There was no attribution. So if you take notes and tweet it or Instagram it, just put my name by it, all right? I love this quote. It says this, Jesus cried alone. And died alone, so that when I cry and die, I will never be alone. In this passage, these words in red, we see anguish and suffering and the separation and silence. And the fourth word, that describes what we see in Matthew 27 is my favorite. It's the word substitution. Simply put, Jesus took my place and your place on the cross. See, the cross shows us the seriousness of our sin. God is a just God. And by his very character, by his very nature, he can't simply overlook sin. It has to be judged. It has to be atoned. It has to be covered. This was the case from the very beginning. And the way that it's atoned for, the way that it's set up, is it can only be covered, it can only be atoned for by blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sin. Blood has to be shed. This is the way it is from the very beginning. You go back to the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve sin against God, what happens? God doesn't slay them, but instead he slays an animal. He substitutes that animal, kills that animal instead of killing them. And then he clothes them with the skin of that animal. 
in the Exodus. It was the, the blood of the Passover lamb that was put over the doors of the home so that the death angel passed. There was a substitute. Instead of the firstborn dying in every household, that lamb died. Leviticus chapter 16, the way the entire sacrificial system is set up. In the day of atonement, the high priest would come in and he would put on one goat, he would put his hands and he would confess his own sins because he was a sinner and then he would send that goat out into the wilderness. It was the scapegoat. It would go away, taking away his sins. And then he would bring in another goat and he would confess the sins of Israel. And what would he do? He would slay that goat and put that goat's blood on the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. The goat died instead of the sins of the people. But here's the thing. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4 says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It's impossible. That's why they did a sacrifice over and over and over and over and over again. And if Jesus, who when John the Baptist saw him said, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. If Jesus doesn't come, we'd still be sacrificing. But Jesus, he goes to the cross and he goes in my place, and he goes in your place, and he sheds his blood as a substitute for me and for you. And it's his blood, it's his blood that makes us right with God. Paul said, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. This is the story of the Bible, Jesus coming to earth, wrapping himself in flesh, and he willingly lays down his life in our place. This is why 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says, for our sake he made him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus on the cross is enduring the wrath of God that is justly ours. And in so doing, he purchases our salvation. And you see this substitution in pictures and in language throughout the Bible. We already saw it in Genesis 3. We see it in Exodus 12. We saw it in Leviticus chapter 16. You see it in Genesis chapter 22 when Abraham marches his son Isaac up to Mount Moriah. Incidentally, Mount Moriah is Mount Calvary where Jesus would die. And Abraham takes the promised son, his only son, Exactly where God takes his only son. And what happens in Genesis 22? Isaac is tied to an altar about to be sacrificed and God stays his hand and provides a ram in the thicket, a substitute that would die in Isaac's place. And here at Mount Moriah, i.e. Mount Calvary, God provides a substitute and it's a substitute for me and you and he slays his son. You see it in language like Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is going to be the, our text on Good Friday. The curse of the cross. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. He took our sin and he took the penalty for our sin. Theologians call this the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement meaning he bore our penalty on the sin. Lehman Strauss, pastor and professor, wrote in his book, The Day God Died, it was not possible to transfer sin without transferring its penalty. The substitute for sinners must be rejected as 
a sinner. And that's exactly what's happening in this moment that has been referred to as the cry of despair. There is suffering and separation and silence and substitution. Sin had to be paid for. God's wrath had to be appeased. And Jesus was the only way. I want you to think about the seriousness of our sin in this moment. We live in a world where, myself included, we've become so cold to sin. We see it every day. We just become numb to it. Even in our own lives, we sin against God and we just shrug our shoulders and say, oh, I'm human. <laughs> I'm going to mess up. I know this is sin, but God will forgive me anyway. And we just do. We just go and do what we want to do. And as 1 John 2, 15, 2, 15 through 17 says, we're living for the things of this world, the desires of the eyes, the desires of the flesh, and the pride in life. And it's that sin, all of our sin, that put Christ on the cross. Spurgeon said, sin slew our Savior. How can we be on friendly terms with him? So I just want just asking in this moment the Holy Spirit to just search our hearts and just reveal to us in this moment what sin we're on friendly terms with. Hatred? Bitterness? Lust, pride. Just do me a favor, just right where you are, just close your eyes in this moment. And let's just ask the Spirit of God to reveal to us what sin we're on friendly terms with. As the Puritan John Owen said, you be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And as God by His power of the Holy Spirit as He reveals whatever sin that is, ask Him to help you just as Romans 6 teaches to consider ourselves dead to the sins of this world and alive to Christ. Galatians 2.20, we have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer we ourselves who live, but Christ who lives in us. You can open your eyes. Two invisible facts at play in this scripture as we bring this passage to a close. And I, as I mention these two invisible facts that we see in scripture, 
the homework this week is for you to just think about these two invisible facts because I think as you do, your heart will expand, your devotion to God will grow, your awe of Him will increase. And so I want you to take these two invisible facts and I just want you to, the homework for this week is to just wrap your mind around them. Number one, I want you to see in this passage of Scripture the hand of God. In Matthew chapter 27, I want you to notice that God on the cross is not a plan B. It's not an accident. This was God's plan A from the very beginning. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 says, It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the first part, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Everything happening on the cross in that moment is filtering through the holy hands of God. His sovereign hand is over the entire situation. Nothing is outside of his control. Josh McDowell in his book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he lists 29 prophecies that are fulfilled in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. His arrest, his betrayal, what happened on the cross, his burial. 29 prophecies in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life. How can this be? How can it be? God's making this happen. You look at the cross and the suffering of Christ, and what we see is God orchestrating and arranging and carrying out his divine plan. Why? Because unless this happens, we die in our sins and forever separated from God. And so God arranges this. Now, some theologians look at this and say, this is, they're more liberal theologians, I assure you, say this is divine child abuse, that the father would allow his son, make his son go to the cross. But I remind you of Jesus' words in John 10, verse 17 and 18, for this reason the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father God. The father God, the son, took the initiative of redemption and plan and purchase and secure our salvation. We see the hand of God in this from the very beginning. Genesis chapter 3, You'll strike his heel, speaking of Satan, striking the heel of Jesus in the crucifixion, but then what does it come back and promise? But he will crush your head. We see the hand of God. But you know what else we see? We see the heart of God. You want to know why? Why God would do it this way? Why, Jesus, would you stay on the cross? You can search the Scriptures. And the only motive you will find is love. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans chapter five, verse eight, God demonstrates his love for us. How does God show his love for us? And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loves you. He loves you with an everlasting love. And that's why he went to the cross no hidden agenda, no bait and switch. It was love that moved the Godhead to accomplish and secure our salvation. And so I want you to think about that this week. The hand of God in orchestrating this divine plan 
and the heart of God in loving us enough to see it through. Thank you for joining us online. We hope today's experience encouraged and challenged you. At Champion Forest, we are passionate about all kinds of people coming to know God, to grow in their relationship with Him and others, and then to go out and make a difference in the world. We would love the opportunity to talk and pray with you. To connect with us, just go to championforest.org connect. And hey, of course, we can't wait to welcome you on campus, in person, on one of our locations. We'll see you soon.